Well, good morning again. Grab your Bibles. Open up, open up to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. So where we pick up in our continuing study through the Gospel of Luke, if you remember, Jesus has been teaching the crowds, and in the midst of that going on, someone from the crowd interrupts Jesus and asks him to to settle a dispute that he is having with his brother over the dividing up of a family inheritance. And that wasn't a terribly unusual thing to do. Maybe to interrupt his teaching was, but it wasn't an unusual thing to do in that day to ask a rabbi, to ask a teacher to be the one to settle a dispute. But Jesus chooses not to. He chooses not to step into that role at that time in that situation, but instead to use this interruption as an opportunity to begin to warn his disciples, to warn those who were his followers about the problem of greed. If you remember, Jesus has been speaking to the crowds, but really, a lot of what he is saying here is spoken very directly to his disciples. And he's talking to them about how it is that they are supposed to live life as a follower of Jesus. They're supposed to be just absolutely different from the, the Pharisees and the scribes whose lives are marked with, and not belief, but rather unbelief, and not with a, a real genuineness in the way they live, but rather with a hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be like that. He doesn't want his followers to be like that. He wants them to live lives that demonstrate faith that is real, that is practical, and that impacts their daily living. He, he wants this profession of faith that they've made in him uh, to be lived out, not just in what they say, but in who they are. He wants it to be about more than just uh, those things that they do in front of others, but also to impact how it is that they, they treat others and deal with them. He wants them to not only look holy outwardly, but in reality to be holy inwardly. He wants them not only to do the right things in the public eye, but also to treat people right when no one's looking. He wants them to acknowledge God and not just as a show for others, but to acknowledge him, whether that acknowledgement will bring blessing or persecution. So Jesus is telling his disciples, and maybe this would be a good moment for us to remind each other that he's saying this to us as well. He's speaking these things to you and to me. He's saying that he wants them to live their lives genuinely genuinely, uh, to have the, their faith in Christ uh, not just be 
their belief system, but really to be the thing that shapes their day-in, day-out living. So, Jesus declines to settle a dispute between two brothers, but instead uses that situation to address the universal issue of greed, that insatiable hunger for more, more, more. Well, let, let's take a look at our passage. Grab your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 12. Uh, this morning we're going to consider verses 13 through 21. So as you find Luke 12, we do this, we stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read our passage, you can follow along. Luke writes, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this. He said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's pray. Father, we always ask that you would help us to understand and absorb and respond to the things that your word says to us. Lord, I sense that this morning this issue that that you long to speak into our lives is a, a bit of a blind spot for us. In the world in which we live, in the culture in which we live, it's an, it's an issue that, that we seem to find very difficult to handle. So, Lord, I pray that this morning, as you promise, we would experience your word being sharp like a two-edged sword. God, we invite you. We ask you to cut deep to speak to us, to address that which you desire to address. And Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves, that we would cooperate with what you want to, to say and to do in our lives. Have your hand on this time, Lord. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. You know, all of us want to live genuinely, right? 
I mean, no one's sitting around thinking, you know, what I'd really like to be is a hypocrite. I mean, I really, that's my jam. I want to be a hypocrite. No, no one thinks that. No one wants to live like that. But it's hard to live genuinely, isn't it? It takes a concentrated effort. I mean, this is something that you have to really do on purpose because it often means embracing things which are uncomfortable, which maybe to us feel unnatural. So it's something that we must purposefully embrace. No one is going to genuinely live out their faith in Christ unless they specifically and pointedly determine that that is what they are going to do, that they will not let anything stop them from that because it's never just going to happen on its own. There are too many ways that we have found to leave the narrow path. Isn't that true? Makes me think of what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. He says that we must enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. But narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here and, and what Jesus is saying there in Matthew. Our salvation, the way that we become saved, it is a free gift that we can never earn. It isn't something that is accomplished by our efforts, right? Uh, remember what Ephesians chapter two tells us. There Paul writes, you are saved by grace, that is the gift of God, through faith, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not from works. So I'm not saying here, oh, it's a narrow path and if you don't perform well enough, you're not gonna make it, that you're not gonna be saved. No, it is a narrow path. It is a narrow way in that Jesus is the only way, in that grace is, is the only path that can lead to salvation. Uh, Jesus himself said it so bluntly. He said that no one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus said. The only way to salvation is through Jesus. It's narrow. You know, it's narrow in another sense in that Jesus calls us to live our lives along a narrow and sometimes difficult path. Certainly, the path that Christ calls us to live on as his followers, it's not the path that our flesh would choose, right? It's not the way that we would go if we were just left to ourselves. And yet, we're not left to ourselves, are we? God is working in this, in the midst of it all with us. It's the path that the Spirit of God within us, that the Spirit of God that indwells us is calling us to embrace. It's the path that, 
that God is encouraging us toward and empowering us to live upon. And that dynamic, that, that mixture of, uh, of us needing to choose and, and God working within us to choose, is, that's the dynamic that, that allows Paul to say all in one breath in Philippians chapter 2 that we need to work out or work outward our own salvation. We need to put effort forth in doing this thing that, and then in the same breath, Paul says, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Living the way that God wants us to live, it's this strange merging of our choosing and God's enabling, of, of us seeking to do and choosing to do what God has called us to and God working in us, giving us even the desire to do that which he calls us to do. And in our day, in our place in this world, I think one of the, the hardest dynamics with that has to do with our wealth, our wealth. I think that the, the aspect of embracing Jesus's way of living that is most difficult for us is embracing Jesus's mentality towards our wealth as little or much as we might have. It seems that nothing is harder for us than changing our perspective from that which is natural, which is us being owners of ourselves and of all that we have, and learning instead to become stewards as God's word points us to. We have to make this transition from being people who see our lives and our stuff and our time as being our possessions, our things, to being those who understand that, that all that we are and all that we have, it belongs to the Lord. It belongs to God who made us who breathed life into us and who has given us both ability and strength and opportunity and who redeemed us, who bought us at a price when we had rebelled. That seems to be the thing that we struggle with more than anything in our culture and in our day. And here, here Jesus uses this man's request about his brother and an inheritance as an opportunity to address this with his followers and with us. Well, let's take a look at what our passage says. Let's begin in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother. Not, Lord, find what's fair. Just tell my brother what to do. This guy's he, he's like us. He's coming to the Lord. He's saying, I got a plan for you, God. I got a four-point plan. It's a, I know exactly what you need to do. And God, if you will follow my instructions very carefully, everything will work out. I've thought this through, right? Don't we do that with God? Isn't that silly? Isn't that ridiculous how we do that? And this man comes, he says, listen, I've figured it out. and You need to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Friend, Jesus said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? So here's this man. He's unhappy with his situation. He asks Jesus to intervene on his behalf. That is something any of us might do. But Jesus doesn't delve into the problem. He doesn't ask who's wrong. He doesn't investigate to see who's right. Rather, he points them in an entirely different direction. Look at verse 15. He told them, and he's not speaking just to this man, and I, I would assume his brother as well, but rather he's speaking to all those who are his followers. And he says, watch out. Look out. Be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus shouts, watch out, look out, be on your guard. You, you know, greed, greed is nothing more than selfish desire for something. It's a blind wanting for something that you don't have. Greed, it can't admire something without owning it. It can't be happy about what others have. Greed demands possession. Greed looks out for self without regard for the needs of others. It's more than just simple hunger. It's a hunger that can't be sated. It's an unquenchable desire to have, to possess, to control, to consume. Greed is all about ownership. It's about having something be mine, my own. Now, before you decide that, well, you know, that's great, I agree with that, I'm just not like that. I'm just not that kind of guy. I, you know, I'm generous. I, I, I'm free. I, that, that just isn't who I am. Be careful. Be careful. Consider for a moment what it is that Jesus says here. Because Jesus says, look out. Don't let your guard down in regards to greed. You don't naturally bend that direction. Great. But keep your guard up. Be careful. And maybe you're looking at this and you're thinking, hey, you know, I understand what Jesus is talking about. And I think I could go that way if I could, but I can't because I'm po. I'm po. I can't even afford the O-R at the end of the word. I'm just po. People above me, they're poor. But I'm just po. And you know, you got to understand this. Jesus says here that the value of your life is not determined by what you have. But think for a moment about who it is that Jesus was saying this to. Stop and consider the material worth of his original hearers. Those whom Jesus was warning, they owned very, very little. They had very little, and they had very little possibility of, of getting really anything more. And yet he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all greed. Think about this for a minute. Jesus spoke this warning 
to first century Galilean villagers. They didn't have anything, not compared to us. We don't consider ourselves wealthy, do we? Oh, but all it takes is traveling a little bit, seeing a little bit more of the world than maybe you can see locally to be exposed to the fact that we are wealthy beyond most people's wildest dreams. Greed isn't just for the wealthy. It isn't just for those who find themselves accustomed to the finer things in life. Greed Greed comes into the life of anyone who allows himself to take on the role of owner rather than the role of steward. I think the parable Jesus tells explains this. Look at verse 16. He told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to share my crops? So a rich man is blessed with an abundant crop. He found himself with so much at harvest time that, that he was unable to store away all that the harvest brought to him. Now understand this, understand very clearly, that abundant crop was a blessing from God. That was a blessing from God. It was a good thing. After all, what does James tell us? James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It was God who had blessed him. The blessing wasn't the problem. The, this wealth that God gave him was a good thing. And it wasn't a bad thing that he had barns in which he could set some of this aside. I mean, the Proverbs tell us that we need to plan ahead. The Proverbs tell us that we need to be wise and to save for the future, to be responsible. In Proverbs chapter 6, here's what the writer says. He says, go to the ant, you slacker. And you didn't think your name was in Scripture. It calls me by name right there. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways. Become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, in other words, without an automatic paycheck deduction, it prepares its provisions in summer and it gathers its food during harvest. What God is saying here is think ahead. Plan for the future. Be responsible. That's what this man is beginning to do. At least that's where it starts, it seems. What this guy doesn't get, though, when he goes to set aside what it is that God has given him, he doesn't understand that it wasn't a bad thing, that he didn't have enough storage capacity for all that God had blessed him with. He didn't understand that it wasn't a bad thing to not be able to put it all aside. 
And because of that, he solved his problem in the wrong way. Look at verse 18. I will do this, he said, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. This guy had an owner's perspective. He, he believed that the land was his. He, he believed that the crop that came from that land was his. He believed that this overabundance, that that was his, and since it was his, what he was seeking to do was to keep it all for himself. And if you're going to keep it all, then you're going to need to build bigger barns. You see, like we often do, this guy was thinking like an owner. It was his. It was all his. It all belonged to him. But it didn't, did it? In fact, none of it was his, not even its life. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. Your life is demanded of you. The language there, it speaks of one who is an owner reclaiming that which belongs to him. It is this man who has possession of his life, and God says, that belongs to me, and today I take it back. Today, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, all this that you've stored away, whose will they be? And Jesus says that's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. See, this man thought he owned it all. He thought he had it all, but the reality was this. This man's life wasn't even his. Even his own life wasn't his. That very night, the one who did own, who truly owned him, called him to account. That night it became obvious that that man owned nothing. You know, that, that's how it goes for owners. Those who live as owners always lose. They always lose because the illusion of ownership, it always ends at death, right? You've, you've heard the saying that you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, right? You, you don't take any of it with you. You don't have control of it after you're gone. At that moment, at that moment that we stand before the Lord, we will not only lose our grasp on every earthly thing, but our life itself is required of us. In other words, we are then in that moment held accountable by the true owner for ourself, for our stuff, for our ability and our opportunity and how we used it all. You guys have tools, right? Let's be honest, sometimes you abuse those tools, right? You're working on something, you have a wrench, but you need a hammer. Close enough, right? Whack, whack, whack. 
you know, you, you've, got a, you've got a hammer, but you needed a screwdriver. Oh, well. We'll put tools through all sorts of abuse. We will misuse them. We will use them not according to how they were designed to be used, but to whatever we decide is necessary in the moment. But you behave differently when you borrow a tool, don't you? When you borrow a tool, I hope you do. You can't borrow from me if you don't. But when you borrow a tool, don't you treat it gingerly? Don't you use it according to its design and according to the intention of the one who provided it? That's the difference between an owner and a steward. One day, one day, we will be held accountable by the owner of all for how it is that we have made use of all that we have been given. It's the idea of judgment, isn't it? Uh, we, all, we all know in our hearts that it's true that judgment will come. We rejoice in that, don't we, when we see someone who's truly evil? You know, like someone who cuts you off in traffic or has 11 items and the 10 items are underlined, right? You see someone like that and you think, judgment's coming, buddy. You know, you've got 11 items and you have no business in this line. Right? And, and you will be judged. You will be held accountable for the vileness of your evil. But we actually feel like that, don't we? When we see someone who does something that is just heinous and evil, that harms the innocent, and we think judgment will come. We think, I wouldn't want to be you when that day comes. And yet, Judgment is justice, and justice isn't just for those who we see as being very evil, but it justice demands that all of us, that all of us be held accountable by the one who made us, by the one who gave us life, who, who has given us abilities and strength, who has given us opportunity, that, that the one who is the true owner would hold us all accountable for what use we have made of all that he has given to us. We know in our hearts that's what justice is. And we know from Scripture that that is what will take place. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, that for those who have taken refuge in Christ, uh, that we are, we are covered with the blood of the sacrifice of our Savior, that, that we are saved by grace, that we are clothed in his righteousness. And yet Paul talks about very clearly here that a day will come when there will be accountability for the believer as well that there will be accountability for how we have lived our lives and, and what we have given ourselves to. 
Paul talks about this. There in verse 13, he says that each one's work, how we have lived our lives, will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, it will be revealed by fire. It will be tested by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. And this is that, that passage where, where Paul talks about the fact that in our lives, and some of the some of the things that we give ourselves, the fruit of it is gold and silver and precious stones. Man, we are walking in the Spirit, and we are living by the Spirit, and God is working in us and through us. But then there are those other days when you go to Costco, right? And you are in the flesh. I think everyone at Costco is in the flesh. <laughs> we are at Costco the other day. I didn't see one person who wasn't in the flesh. And even in the rearview mirror. It's just like it draws it out. And there are moments in our lives where the fruit of our living is wood, hay, and stubble, Paul would say. And what Paul talks about here is an accountability, a judgment of cleansing, a judgment of cleansing that that wood, hay, and stubble is burnt away. Now think about this. That is a gift from God. That is... That is a judgment that we can embrace and be thankful for. I don't want to enter glory with this trail of nastiness hanging on to me, with a trail of wood, hay, and stubble dropping off behind me. I want to be cleansed. I want to be purified. I, I want all of that burnt away so that all that is left is the gold, silver, and precious stones that will be purified that I might offer them as an act of worship to my Savior. It's an accountability for our living. It's a cleansing from those things that are unworthy to enter heaven. But for those who reject Christ, for those who reject Christ, there is a, a justice, a judgment that will bring condemnation because there is no salvation outside of Christ. And John describes it in Revelation chapter 20. That there at the end of all things, John says, I also saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. There will be no courtroom drama there, no one arguing for their innocence. It will be a monotonous and awful condemnation after condemnation after condemnation because no one who is outside of Christ can measure up to the righteousness and the holiness of God. There is an accountability when we leave this life. We're held accountable for how we live. And the reason we're held accountable for that is because our lives don't belong to us. They belong to God. You, me, we belong to God. We are not owners 
in this life. We are stewards or managers within this life. So what's the difference between an owner and a steward? One who lives like an owner and one who, who lives as a caretaker or a manager of what God has given. You know, one key distinction is the issue of submission. You see, an owner is boss. An owner, an owner, they're in charge. No one can tell them what to do. They get to make the decisions and they make them as they please. But a manager, a manager is different, right? Oh, a manager still has to make decisions, but they don't do it based upon their own desires, but rather they do it on behalf of the one whom they serve. The steward chooses what their master wants, not what they want. Another distinction is what happens when things begin to accumulate. You see, those who are owners, as they begin to accumulate resources, they end up being owned by them. They end up being owned by them. Owners' hearts always become ensnared. They become enslaved to wealth, to stuff, to property, to money. Or if you're less successful in the things of this world, you become enslaved to the fruitless pursuit of all of those things, right? It's just as bad, isn't it? it it's bad to be enslaved to wealth. It's just as bad to be enslaved to the fruitless pursuit of wealth. It doesn't work to do that. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. And these things, these things, they grab a hold of our heart and they hold us enslaved. The stuff of this world is a poor master. The stuff of this world will rob you of your strength, your time, your energy, and it will always demand more of you. It will always demand more, 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 and it will always leave you dissatisfied. The stuff of this world, it's, it's like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. That's what it's like with the stuff of this world, isn't it? You never get to, to the place where you have enough despite what you might promise yourself. You never find yourself satisfied if you're an owner. The only way to be free is to choose instead to be a steward to choose to recognize that the God himself owns not only you, uh, but, but all of your life, your abilities, your resources, they are all his. But we, we've got to take that beyond just being a theological statement. It's got to be something more than, yeah, that, that's what I believe. It's got to be more than something that is theoretical. But it's got to become a dynamic that actually impacts how we handle the stuff that we have, how we handle our time, how we handle our finances, how we handle ourselves. 
We've got to come to the place where we allow the Lord to choose to spend us and all that we have however it is that he desires. And you know, you never know what the Lord is going to do. You might look at yourself think, well, there isn't much. I don't have much. That's okay. God can do a lot with very little, right? He's got a whole history of doing that. And this man in this parable, I mean, if he had chosen to be a steward, well, we wouldn't have a parable then, but um, if he had chosen to be a steward instead of an owner, if he had seen this great excess that the Lord had given to him, what could have he done? Well, he could have gone to the Lord. He said, okay, my barns are full. I need to know what to do with the rest. Show me what to do. And you know, who knows what the Lord would have had him done. Uh, Jesus often told the wealthy to give to the poor. Maybe he would have told him to distribute it amongst those who were in need. You know, this is odd, but maybe he would have told him to build bigger barns like he did Joseph in Egypt and not for himself, not so that he could be more in control of his own life as time went on, but for God's purposes to achieve whatever it is that God would have him do. You know, you never know what God will do with his stuff. We don't get to control that because he's the master and we're the steward. What we have to do is we have to choose to embrace the role of the steward rather than the role of the owner. Not theoretically, but practically in the living out of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, even when it speaks things that might be hard for us. And God, if this doesn't seem hard, I pray that you would help us to understand it so we would see how hard it really is. And Lord, we pray that you would change us, change our perspectives, our mentality when it comes to our lives and our stuff. God, we are so caught up in being in control of our lives and the things that we have or want. I pray, Lord, that we would cede that control to you, that we would find very practical ways, that we would begin living day in and day out as your stewards, caring for the things that you have entrusted us with. seeking to accomplish what you desire. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we get to close our time by sharing in the Lord's table together. You know, you and I, we have been bought at a price, right? God made us. He created us. We belong to him because of that. But then we rebelled against God. We sinned against him. We cut ourselves off from him, but he was not content to leave things there. 
So he sent his son. Jesus put on human flesh. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and yet he died. He paid the penalty for sin, even though he had not sinned. He died on the cross in order to purchase us, to purchase our forgiveness, to redeem us out of sin. And so we are twice bought by our Lord. And in order that we would remember what it was that he did, he gathered with his closest followers just before he went to the cross. And in the midst of sharing a meal with them, he gave them bread and he said, take this and eat it. This is my body given for you. That had to be an odd moment for them. That had to be something that they did not fully yet understand. Yet Jesus gave them something tangible, something that they would take and that they would divide and they, they would consume, that they might remember the reality that the cross is real, that Jesus is real, that he truly suffered and died for sin in our place. And then later on during that same meal, he took a cup and he gave that to him. And he said, this cup, it's the new promise, the new covenant of my blood, my blood that is poured out to cleanse your sin, to cleanse you, to redeem you, that you might enter into relationship with the Father. We are bought by him, by his sacrifice in our place. He wanted his guys, his disciples, to remember that. And so he told them, as often as you gather, I want you to do this. I want you to partake of the bread and of the cup. And I want you to do it not as a ceremony and not as a rite or a ritual, but I want you to do it in order to remember what it is that I've done for you. And so today, as we close with just a couple of worship songs, you're going to have an opportunity to come and to take a, a pair of cups. The bottom cup has a, a little nugget of bread in it. The top cup has a little grape juice in it. Return to your seat. And you and the Lord meet there. And you can thank him. And you can worship him. And you can remember that he purchased you by what he did upon the cross. And you can partake of the bread and of the cup in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you that we get to do this. We thank you that you meet us here. And God, I pray that in the midst of this time, our eyes and our hearts would be as focused as a laser upon you. That, that nothing would pull us away from considering the reality of your death in our place, your redemption of our lives, your payment for our sin. God, we thank you. We thank you for it all. We pray it in Jesus' name.